Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. Today is Friday, September 2nd, 2022. This is Shannon, and today I'm here with Christine and Brooke, and we are doing one of our yearly episodes. It's time for books set in schools, because so many people are back to school now, but I'm not, and that's okay. I've been back to school <laughs> in many, many years, and that is totally okay with me. So... We are going to get started with the usual housekeeping information. Then I will start us off, followed by Brooke, and lastly, Christine. You can find us on Facebook by searching for the Book Bistro podcast. Once there, you can post to our timeline. You can also message us privately. If you want a more social interaction, you can join our Facebook listener group, which is pretty quiet at the moment, though we are looking at some ways of possibly revamping it. If Facebook is not your thing and you still would like to hang out with us, check us out on our WhatsApp group. You can subscribe to that either by messaging us through Facebook or by sending us an email, and one of us will be happy to add you. If you're looking to get a hold of us via email, you can do that by contacting the Book Bistro Podcast at gmail.com. So my first pick tonight is kind of timely. I have been watching um, a trial, and it's actually a death penalty trial for Nicholas Cruz, who pled guilty to the shooting at Parkland um, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. And I've been thinking a lot about school shootings lately. Not the most pleasant thing to think about, but it is a sad um, reality for us now, at least here in the U.S. So my first book is actually a school shooting book. So content warnings here for all kinds of, of mayhem and violence related to school shootings. This is That's Not What Happened by Cody Keplinger. First of all, I have to say that Cody Keplinger is one of the few visually impaired authors um, that I'm aware of right now who's writing like really excellent YA fiction. Um, That's Not What Happened is the story of a group of teenagers who survived a shooting at their high school. Our main character is Lee. She is asexual and her best friend, Sarah, was one of the victims of the shooting. And there has been this whole narrative built up around the way that Sarah died. And everyone views her as this, this martyr, right? They, they're saying that she died like proclaiming her, her Christian faith. Now, this is actually not true. And Lee knows that this isn't true because she was there with Sarah in the restroom where Sarah died. And so she knows exactly what happened to Sarah and what was said and what was not said. But a lot of people have really come to lean on this narrative about Sarah's death. And when Lee decides that it's time for her to come clean and actually tell the truth about what really happened, not just to Sarah, but all kinds of things that led up to the shooting, a lot of people are very, very upset. And this causes Lee to wrestle with kind of her own motives for telling the truth. And like, is telling the truth in a situation like this always the best policy? We see things from a variety of perspectives that help us understand not just what happened to Lee and to Sarah, but to some of the other students as well. One of the characters is a blind high school student. Um, he is not like a, I wouldn't say a main character. We see his, his point of view a few times, 
Um, and I really liked the way Keplinger wove him into the story without making his blindness like a big deal. You know, I didn't feel like the whole story was grinding to a halt and going, oh, my God, look, there's a blind person. And he survived a shooting. Ah, like, <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't at all like that. Um, this is a darkly disturbing book, but I think one that is really, really important, especially considering the political climate in the U.S., um, the way so many people value the right to bear arms against, you know, the right to stay alive in, in public spaces. Um, it'll be a hard read for a lot of people, but if you're looking for something that delves deep into school shootings, their aftermath, and just like, how, how do people come back from an experience like that? Um, this is one that I highly recommend. It's That's Not What Happened by Cody Keplinger. Okay, so my first book today is The Girls Are All So Nice Here by Lori Elizabeth Flynn. So our main character's name is Ambrosia, which I think is a hilarious name. It's a very funny um, name. Yeah, her whole name actually is even funnier. Ambrosia Wellington. Like how, like how wow. fancy is that? Ambrosia. So a lot has happened since Ambrosia finished college back um, 10 years prior. And she's really tried to leave her college days behind. She doesn't really keep in touch with anyone. When she was in college, she was a theater major. Well, she didn't end up following this, um, this line of study. And she's now working as a PR person. And she's got a husband. His name is um, Adrian. And Adrian is this college dropout who likes to hang out on the couch playing video games. And Ambrosia's happy. Like, she's happy with his life. But then she gets a note. At the same time as she gets this mysterious note, she gets an invitation to their college reunion. So she really doesn't want to go to the reunion. So she starts, like, she ignores the emails asking her to come to the reunion. But then she gets this note that says, you, we need to talk. We need to talk about what happened 10 years ago. Like, how scary is that, right? So she does not want to talk about what happened 10 years ago. And she does not want to even, like, go near any of the people that she knew back then. But Adrian sees the invitation and says, like, convinces her that they really should go. So they go. And while there, they meet up with her friend at the time. Her name is Sloane Sullivan, um, also known as Sully. And Sully was the kind of girl that everyone wanted to be friends with. Um, she really got... Ambrosia to like go out of her shell. She made her try things that she normally wouldn't have tried. So her and Sully, they start chatting and they realize that both of them have been receiving these mysterious notes. So they want to know like what's going on because like who's sending them? Um, is it related to like that? horrible night when somebody died um is it related to something different um is does somebody want revenge like they don't know what's going on so ambrosia is trying to keep adrian from talking to too many people alone because she he does she doesn't want him to learn about that horrible night 10 years ago and she also doesn't want him to learn about the person that she used to be. So like she's trying to like hide everything and he's kind of getting to know people. And meanwhile, her and Sally keep getting, they get other notes and like other things are happening. Um, the book goes between the past. So back when they were in college and also right now when they're at the, uh, 
reunion and slowly we learn kind of what happened. So back when they were in college, um, Ambrosia had a roommate named Florence and Florence had the kind of life that Ambrosia just, she wanted. She wanted this kind of life. Um, and Flora, Florence had this boyfriend that Ambrosia met. His name was Kevin. And Ambrosia decides that she thinks that Florence doesn't deserve Kevin, that she wants Kevin. So her and Sully, they set this thing up, this whole situation up in order for Ambrosia to get the boy and something happens. And that my friends is where I'm going to leave you. This is, this is, the girls are all so nice here and it's by Lori Elizabeth Flynn. An author recommended this to me. I think it was May Cobb who wrote The Hunting Wives. Oh, Oh, neat. Um, recommended this to me in 2020 um, and I didn't read it right away and then I finally got to it and I was, I was very glad I picked it up. So my first book is a book that I have to uh, come clean and say that I am in the process of reading as well but I wanted to talk about it because it's just it's it's a very important subject and it it's it goes on so pervasively, I think, a- across the United States. And so I, I decided to talk about it because I hopefully know enough to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it is Does My Body Offend You? And it is by Mayra Cueves. And content warning for racial language, violent behavior, and sexual misconduct. It is a dual narrative. So one of our voices is Ruby, who is a thin, white, you know, does okay with her lot in life um, student, not bothered especially by poverty or, or really anything that's uncomfortable. Um, our other narrator is Malena, who is Puerto Rican. She's brown-skinned and curvy, and she has just come to Orange Grove Schools School because she has been displaced by Hurricane Maria. Um, as it turned out, her, her mother uh, were at a birthday party for their, her grandmother who is in Florida with her daughter and husband and like two cousins, you know, of, of, uh, Malena's. So they, they came for a weekend that that's what they came for. They brought enough things for a weekend have a birthday party, go back home. And while they were there, the hurricane hit and they, they couldn't go back home. Uh, everything was underwater. And her father was still there. He was working. He needed to be there. He was working rescue operations and he couldn't leave. So now they are relocated to this new, new town new life with very little. They don't have enough furniture. They don't have enough of anything. And they're living with, you know, the, their extended family. So there's school. And at this birthday party, Malena got very burned, very sunburned. She wasn't careful. She was wearing like a halter top or whatever. And she got very burned, like first degree burns on her back. So this first day of school, Monday rolls around and she can't wear a bra because it hurts oh. to put the bra on. 
So her mother says, that's okay. You know, if you wear this tunic of mine, it looks kind of cool and it's, it, it will cover up everything and you're fine. You know, you, you can't have the bra. So, cause your skin will come off. So you go, well, this is not okay with Orange Grove. They Aww. talk about their dress code and they call her into the vice principal's office, the vice principal calls her in. They have like five vice principals and they're all women. Uh-huh. And it seems like they do all the work. And then the one principal who is a man, of course, gets all the credit. That's one of the things they said in the book. And it does seem true. So they call her in and they say, you, you, have, to ha- you have to cover those up. You can't show your nipples like that through the tunic. Maybe people, you know, you're, it's, you might distress boys. And um, you might distract, you know, them and distract male teachers. So they give her a roll of tape and they tell her to go to the women's. Yes. Like like some sort of uh, surgical tape or something. And they tell her to go to the restroom and get panty liners and put them over her breasts. What? Yeah, that's what they tell her to do because she's violating the dress code. And she just, she doesn't know. This is her first day. She's so devastated. She's grieving the loss of her life in Puerto Rico and so many things. So she goes in the restroom and she's crying and she's trying to put these panty liners on her breasts. I wouldn't know how to do that and make it work. And Ruby comes in. And Ruby says, what's the matter? You know, and she's trying to be helpful. And, and, and she says, you don't have to do this because there's nothing in the dress code that says you can't, that you have to wear a bra. It's not in the dress code. Like I, I know the dress code, it's nowhere. Don't do that. So she says, maybe if I take my hair out of its wonderful, beautiful, big, huge ponytail, she takes it down and she kind of, flings it all forward and uses that to cover herself in the tunic. And if she tries really hard, maybe she'll avoid trouble. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And people are, she has to, she has detention because she didn't wear a bra and she has to, to do, she has detention for a week. And this really makes Ruby angry. So Ruby goes to the office with no bra the next day and says, look, (laughs) I'm not wearing a bra and it's hard to tell because she's not endowed as, as Malena is. So I want detention too, because I'm violating the dress code, you know, and it, the, the whole book, it's about how these two totally different people, they, they get to be friends and they decide to fight this dress code that doesn't really even exist. And it has nothing in it about guys. They, they can wear whatever they want, do whatever they want, but it's all about women. And it's so much talks about how different the standards are for boys versus girls, men versus women, um, what that they can't get away with. You know, it, it's terrible. You're going to mess up the boys if you show this or that. And, you know, the, the whole idea that women have to conform to a whole different set of standards and it's not their bodies there's a whole lot of talk out there about at one point this baseball player says well i have to really be careful what i drink and eat because this is my body and i have to i want it to give me a career and the word my body just keeps going through ruby's um head like because it doesn't ever feel like it's her body it doesn't ever feel like it's melena's body their bodies belong to whatever society thinks they should be allowed to do and their bodies belong to men. There's a huge walkout that the students stage where they all leave the school one day and they, you know, a lot of students get behind this movement. There's a, there's a lot of, of, you know, bad things said too, like because she's Puerto Rican and a lot of people, you know, go back to your own country. You're not a citizen. And that's really, that's really odd because the thing about that is Puerto Ricans are United States citizens and very few people know that. And even fewer people ever treat them like that. So all these people came here because of the hurricane 
and they got treated like foreigners to a country they belong to because of Puerto Rico belonging as a republic to the U.S. So it was a it's it's a very stark look at how things are different for men and women, how things are different for, of course, races like Puerto Rican or Hispanic or, you know, dark skin versus light. And it's also telling about the whole Hurricane Maria situation and how badly we as a government and as a people treated a whole republic that we're supposed to actually like is supposed to be a part of us and it's still it it's still not done there i mean we we were we were terrible we let the ball drop so badly and so i just it's it's great i'm not done with it but i am so enjoying it and i think it's a very great read for a lot of 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 reasons and it gives a lot of insight into stuff we don't look at very often so again it is does my body offend you and it is by myra Cueves. this is on my tbs i'm looking forward to reading it my next book was recommended to me a few years ago by natalia and this is a book this is a debut novel that i loved so incredibly much and this book does not get the attention that I think it should. So this is All Your Twisted Secrets by Diana Urban. Oh, so good. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes I love this book. Yeah. So at the beginning of the synopsis, it tells us that a group of students have each received an invitation to a dinner. Now this dinner is supposed to be sort of to honor them for being selected to receive certain scholarships. So there are a group and they, they go to this, this restaurant where they meet and they're expecting that they're going to, you know, their, their teachers are going to be there. Maybe like some people that are actually awarding the scholarships, like the scholarship committee. And they're thinking, you know, this is, this is a pretty big deal. But when they get to the restaurant, like there's no one there but them. And all of a sudden they're sitting in this like small kind of banquet room. And suddenly the door just closes and locks and no one can figure out why. Well, then they realize that there's a note and the note kind of explains what's going on, but not really. So this is like an escape room, but an escape room with very deadly consequences if if you don't complete it. So they are locked in this room. They have this note they have a syringe full of poison. And the note instructs them that they have to select someone in this group to inject with the syringe and that person will die. If they don't do this, they will all die. Uh. And so they're, they're given a time limit and they're like, okay, like now the time is starting. So you better work on deciding like who you're going to choose. So this throws all of these people like into a tailspin. Like no one knows what to do. I mean, how do you decide? Like there's a group of people, most of these people you've known for a long time, you know, at least since the beginning of high school, some of them since like early childhood. So how do you decide which one of them you're going to kill? But even more importantly to some of the students here, is the question of like, who would do this to them? Who would put them in this situation and why? Like what possibly could be the reason for this? So then we start going back throughout, you know, the last few years. And we start looking at the way all of these people relate not only to one another, but to their teachers, to like fellow students at school. And you slowly begin to put the pieces together as to kind of like what, the motive for this is, but you still don't know who does it. You know, you still don't know like who is behind it. And we get to see how each of these people approaches the situation a little bit differently. Um, You know, some people are thinking like, okay, you have to decide the person who is like worth the least 
is, uh-huh. is the one that should die. So like, you know, if you're a valedictorian or a super popular kid or an athlete or, you know, whatever, like those people shouldn't die because supposedly those people like have, have value to the world. But if you are like a loner, or if you're kind of like the, the bad boy, kind of the, the druggy kid, like that's probably okay some of these people decide. Other people think maybe it should be desi- decided by a different type of merit. Like, are you a good person or are you kind of an asshole? And so you're looking through all these different lenses of these people locked in this room. And it's just a very twisty, very suspenseful ride. Um, it's kind of ridiculous in in the best way because like is the case with a lot of thrillers like you're not this is not very likely to happen but it's a lot of fun to read about and I really admire Diana Urban for creating such a stellar book as her debut novel so this is all your twisted secrets and it's by Diana Urban I highly highly recommend it if you have not read it yet this book was awesome yes so i am going to take us away from seriousness and we are going to enter the realm of urban fantasy yay so my next book is shadow angel shadow angel book one by leah stone and julie hall so our main character's name is tatum and when we join the, we join, first join her, she's just kind of living her life. Um, she's working at a diner. Um, she's taking care of her grandmother who has dementia. And she's really worried about her grandma. Like she's having to always, she unplugs like the stove and the microwave just because she doesn't want her, her grandmother to accidentally call the fire. She's stressed because any little thing that goes wrong, the landlord kind of gets after them. And she's done her day of work and she gets on the subway and she's sitting on the subway thinking about like all the things she needs to do when she gets home. And she's, she's looking around and she just sees this like being attached to some guy's back. And then this guy is like going after this other woman who's and her and this woman has a child on the subway. And so Tatum's looking around and she's realizing that her and this woman are the only people on this car. So she's like, well, I can't let something happen to this mother and her child. So I need to step in. So she steps in and she doesn't know what she's going to do, but she gets the attention of the guy and the guy just like all of a sudden says, calls her something and she doesn't understand. Like they're, she's calling him, or they, he calls her like a shadow, um, I guess shadow, shadowing and she doesn't understand, but she's able to save the woman and her and the woman escape. And she's like, I don't know, like that is so weird. So she goes on with her life. She goes, she goes home and she checks on her mom, her grandma, her grandma's good. And then it's the next day. And again, she's got to go off to work. She does her thing. And some other weird thing, like she starts seeing things and she's like, I don't know what the heck. Well, things continued to go weird. And then her restaurant, um, a woman at a restaurant, like one of her coworkers is attacked. And she meets these teenagers and they tell her that there's something special about her that she needs to know. And that if she wants to know more, like she thinks that they're total, like totally full of crap. Like, she doesn't believe this. Like, there's no way that this is possible. But things are going weird. And so they give her a card that has her phone number, their phone number. 
So they go off and do their thing. And then all these weird things start happening and she's attacked, but she's able to get away. And she realizes that she needs to figure out like what's going on because this just, things are just not like, she can't keep going this way. Right. So she calls the number and nobody answers, but there's like a recording and it says that she, they've reached the, um, I guess shadow Academy. And so she's not really sure what's going on, but she leaves a message and just says like, this is Tatum. I'm just calling, um, call me back. The teenagers find her and they help her out of a situation that she gets into and they take her, they go, um, they take her to the Academy and she begins to learn that she's got, she's part of a line of watchers and back long time ago, there was this big war between angels and there's a split. There's the um, Shades, which is another academy, and it's made up of like fallen angels who work alongside demons. And then you have the Lumineers who are, they work alongside the Archangel from Avalon. So as she's learning, she's realizing that she needs to make a decision. She has to decide whether she's going to join the Shades or the Lumineers. So they both, um, kind of like a representative from each group, take her on tours of the school. And she knows she needs to get back to her, mom, her grandmother. So all this is happening in a very short amount of time. So she's been away from her grandmother for probably close to 24 hours now, because when she was attacked, they brought her to the academy to get help. Um, so she gets um, her and one of the Lumineers, they come and they help her and they go back to check on her grandmother. And unfortunately, her grandmother caused a flood in their base in their apartment so you can imagine how upset Ooh. the landlord is the landlord tells her that she needs to get out and that they need to leave like immediately so she's stressed right out because she doesn't know what she's gonna do but um the girl she realizes that her grandmother the that tatum's grandmother she doesn't really have um, dementia that is actually something to do with the shadow world so she calls her mother her mother is actually like that kind of like the headmaster of the Lumineers and gets her to come and to check out Tatum's grandmother and to also like help them figure out like what to do because like these are like 17 year olds so her mom comes and checks her out and they realize that her grandmother has been cursed. Um, and as they learn more about the curse, we realize that she's been cursed by one of the shades. And so what she has to do is she has to decide, like, as I told you, she has to decide between joining these two different factions. And she learns that if she doesn't join one side versus the other, that her grandmother could end up dying. Cool. So they have to learn like who set this curse and save her grandmother while also kind of figuring out like how she fits into this whole new world. And that, my friends, is where I'm going to leave you, which I know is kind of confusing. Um, there's three books to the trilogy. All three books are out. Yay. And it does have, which I, one thing I do like about the fact that all three books are out now is that I can tell you guys to read it. Um, without worrying about there because there is a cliffhanger at the end of book one and book two so it's really um, helpful that they're all out um, this is Shadow Angel Shadow Angel book one and it's by Leia Stone and Julie Hall 
reminds me of Cassandra Clare and her mortal instrument, like the first trilogy in her. Yeah, um, it, I would Shadow definitely have world. to. Yeah, I would. I would definitely compare. Like there, it's very much its own thing, but at the same time, it's I could. Comp- I would. I would definitely say it's a good comparison. So, my next book is the Agathas by Catherine, Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson. And it's a cool take, I think. It's, it brings uh, Agatha Christie sort of into the YA and now kind of thing. I'm not a big Christie reader. I, I should say I'm not a Christie reader at all. But I've read Me enough neither. a long time ago to know that like, a lot of times it has to do with like being in a remote location, like on a train or in some countryside dwelling. And usually there's like a closed or close sort of group of people, whether it's family or, or some group of, of people bound together by something. And this book uses some of that and, but it doesn't overdo it, which I really like. So it's cool because I'm never going to be a Christie reader, but this gave me a taste of it. So this is a dual narrative as well. Seems like I'm into those uh, today. Um, And it's from two very different characters because they see life through very different lenses. Um, First, there's Alice, and she's got wealth and privilege. She's popular. She's been pretty protected by her her status. Um, She was dumped by her basketball uh, star player boyfriend Steve over the summer and when that happened she disappeared for five days ah. and nobody knew uh-huh. where she went and nobody knew what happened to her and for a while in Castle Cove this was a big mystery and they, they didn't know because when she came back she wasn't talking Oh, but then there's a bigger mystery that takes the heat off of where she was and what she was doing for a bit, because one of Steve's other girlfriends disappears and she's not coming back. Oh, she uh, is Brooke Donovan. And she disappears on Halloween night. And she was Alice's, she's Alice's like ex-best friend. So Alice is pretty bothered by this. And she decides that she really wants to get involved. And that's going to probably mean talking about what she was doing and where she was and what happened to her for that five days. Um, But the other thing about Alice is that she's struggling with her grades and especially her parents don't like this because they don't want her grades to go south. So they hire her a tutor. And that's the other narrator in this dual narrative. Her name is Iris. And Iris is tough. And she's been around the block because she's not at all like Alice. She's skeptical of that wealth and power that class that she's never been able to be a part of she and her family struggle she lives with her mother and it 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 it's there's a lot of of uh, really insightful and good well done banter between these two throughout the book about their different ways of life and th- how it is that they don't understand each other and that they try to explain themselves to each other so you have this really unlikely group uh, couple of individuals who she starts out tutoring her but Alice soon talks her into trying to figure out what happened to her ex-best friend and solve this this murder because she is indeed dead and uh And Iris, you know, unlike Alice, Iris would like to disappear. She has her reasons for wanting to do that, but she doesn't have the means to do that. She doesn't have the the power and the prestige to just make that happen. However, uh, the grandmother of Brooke Donovan is offering a very substantial reward for anybody who can give information 
about her granddaughter, um, what happened to her. And Iris really wants the money because then she can do something different with her life. Um, the police are convinced that Steve is the culprit. So they're pretty much viewing it as an open and shut case and they're not doing anything about it. But uh, Alice doesn't think for, for certain reasons, doesn't think that Steve did it and wants to prove that. So this, they, they start doing all kinds of plotting and scheming and thinking. And Alice has the complete works of Agatha Christie that's always with her. She's always got some book from it. And she's always quoting, you know, like things that Agatha might think in her mind when she's going to try to solve a crime. And so together, and they bring in some other kind of cool teens that we get to know that try to solve this. And it's also a very cool blending of the two sort of different different sides of a coin. They're different cultures, the different, like, even if, if nothing else, the different wealth and statuses, different classes. And, they, and it's cool. It kind of reminds me of, you know, in romance, there's a enemies to lovers trope. And I, I feel like this is sort of like a enemies to friends in, in YA, because we have that sometimes. And this is like that. Yes, like yes, these we do. Two people who are like That's tooth hot. and nail at first and everything they do <laughs> there, they, 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 they pit against each other and, and then they, by the end of this, they've got each other's backs and they are buds and they want to help each other. And they do a really cool job of playing, uh, teen crime solvers it's a very neat book to read um and it is the agathas by kathleen glasgow and liz lawson is this going to be a series do you know because i feel like it could i don't be. know i don't i Did don't you know feel it like would it be cool to see them for... do more things but i'm definitely going to read this so whenever we do this episode i'm always looking for residential schools that are not like your typical boarding school and this year I was so excited because I get to talk about a book that is set at a residential school for the deaf oh this this is true biz by Sarah Novick so before I actually get into the description here I want to give a content warning for ableism and medical trauma So this is a story that's told from three different points of view. We have Charlie, who is a deaf teenager who has been kept isolated from other deaf people, mostly by her mother, but with her father being sort of quietly opposed, but still complicit. Just before the story starts, her parents have separated. She is now living with her father. And her father has decided that she can attend a residential school for the deaf. And she's kind of excited, but also kind of nervous. She doesn't know how to sign. She has a cochlear implant and her mother has always pushed her to speak and to be, you know, as, as hearing as possible. And this has not worked well for Charlie over the years. So when she gets to school, she is kind of at a disadvantage because all these people around her are signing and she has no idea like what they're saying and she, she can't communicate with them. We also meet Austin and Austin is like the, like the prince of, of deaf culture. Um, he lives with his mother who's deaf, his father who is hearing but who works as an interpreter and then there's him. Um, his mother is pregnant and he's pretty excited that he's going to have a little sister, but when his sister is born, she can hear. And this causes all kinds of fault lines to form in, in this family. And it causes Austin to kind of reevaluate like what he thinks about himself and his role in not only the school, but kind of at the the deaf community as a whole. We also have February. February is the hearing daughter of a deaf mother, and she is the headmistress of the school. 
she is committed to keeping the school open as long as she can, despite the fact that people like, higher up are wanting to close it down. Like they don't think it makes sense to have it open. They want people to be mainstream, like there's no, no sense in residential schools, these people believe. But not only is February struggling to keep the school afloat, her mother is nearing the end of her life. Um, and February is having some difficulties in her own marriage. So there's a lot going on for her. At the beginning of the school year, she learns that this is actually going to be the last year that she's going to be able to keep the school open. And she needs to figure out how to prepare her students for this. This is not a thriller. Um, it's, it's not a romance. It's kind of a quiet slice of life book that does a great job examining just the everyday lives of people at this school. And it does an amazing job of pointing out, I think, to able-bodied people that people with disabilities live their lives very much like the rest of the world. Um, these kids want mostly the same things that their hearing peers want. But because of the way our society views disability, a lot of people don't realize this. And so there is this huge barrier between disabled and non-disabled people in a lot of areas of life. This is, it's a, a difficult book, I think, if you look at it from sort of a, a political standpoint, if you look at it from I think the lens that a lot of disabled people are likely to use when they read this. Um, this is a book that talks about bodily autonomy, um, the rights of disabled people, be they children or adults, to decide what happens to their own bodies, um, the right to consent or to deny medical treatment if it's not something that you want. Um, and cochlear implants are a big deal in this book as they are in the deaf community and kind of a, a polarizing force here. I think when you read the synopsis of this, you're likely to view it as kind of a YA book. And I would say it has some very, very good YA crossover appeal, but I would definitely say it is a book that is marketed more for adults. And it is True Biz by Sarah Novick. And it's awesome. It I is. It. Yeah. It's that eight-old argument, too, again, about mainstreaming versus mm -hmm. having the ability to do residential schools. And where do they both fit in? So my last book is called River of Ashes. And it's St. Benedict, book one, by Alex Andrea Weiss. So... There's a lot of um, warnings I should give. Um, there's sexual assault. There's like, you get the whole point of view of the one character who is a psychopath. He's very psychopath. Um, so it can be very, very, very disturbing. So if you're very disturbed by kind of getting into the mind of, yeah, if you're very disturbed by kind of getting the villainous side of things, then I would definitely not read this book. So there's this old deserted abbey um, that is located on the edge of a river. And the kids of Benedict, St. Benedict, um, it's like a like this prestigious kind of high school. Um, they like to party there on weekends. Well, Bo, Devereaux, he is like kind of like the star athlete of the of the town. Um, he's from a very prominent family who kind of like owns lots of businesses, so they they kind of uh, employ pretty much everyone in the town. And he's a only son, like he's, sorry, he's the only child. 
So you can only imagine how spoiled this guy is. And there's this well-known, it's well-known kind of by his family that he is a psychopath. And that, and they've tried very, very, very hard to hide it. Um, They've sent him off for treatment and it obviously didn't work as you'll read, you'll learn. I wonder why not. (laughs) (laughs) And he uses this old abbey as, and these parties as a place where he can torment students. And he has, like, he kind of uses his power over them, being like Ooh. the, the uh, famous boy of the town and being everyone loves him. And like at the parties, he brings all the, he brings all the alcohol, like he supplies all the alcohol. So everyone loves him. So he uses that kind of pressure on people to not not talk when he does something wrong. Well, he's dating a woman named, or a girl, sorry, named Dawn. But he's only dating her because he is determined that he is going to get her twin sister, Leslie. Like, he has this obsession over her. And she, he totally wants her. Like, he wants, he has things that you learn in his head that he wants to do to her and he has all these plans and like when he doesn't get his way because obviously he hasn't gotten his way so far he does things to other women in the book and like this is just this book is about Bo and about his like horribleness that he does to all these people and about Leslie and kind of figuring out how to get her sister to see this other side of Bo because she knows that something's going on. Um, it was a very like kind of psychologically creepy book to read. Um, it was kind of hard to read, but I also found it almost, it was intriguing to me because, well, I don't think that way. And to think that people are being treated this way and nobody is really like, they're kind of just like letting it go. Like I just, for me, I can't understand how a family can just kind of like sweep it under the rug. So this is River of Ashes, St. Benedict, book one, and it's by Alexandria Weiss. And I'm looking forward to seeing actually what book two is all about especially based on how it all ended. The synopsis of this makes me think of um, Our Kind of Cruelty by Araminta Hall, like outside the school. Like if you take away the fact that, you know, this kid is in school and doing these things. Yeah. My final book is In the Wild Light by Jeff Zentner because um, I really like Jeff Zentner and because it's kind of, you know, nice to end. Like nobody gets murdered in this book. So there's no killer to find. It's a beautiful coming of age um, book. And there's, there's a lot of, you know, heartache and, and, and genuine pain in it, but it's, it's the, you know, it's the, the growing up living with loss, that kind of stuff. So our two characters, our main characters are Cash Pruitt and Delaney Doyle. And they have grown up together in, um, it is Sawyer, Tennessee, which is in the Appalachians. It's a very depressed town. It's very uh, crime-ridden. It's it, it, lots of drugs, lots of drug dealers, and therefore lots of that kind of. You got to watch your back. And and Cash has always looked out for Delaney. He has always protected her, had her back, and he's been convinced that he's in love with her from the time he was a little boy. And. She is incredibly intelligent and she wants to go away and get a good education in some kind of sciences or something. She wants to be able to bring back something that makes this area better. She wants to bring something back and help this very depressed place. So she wins a scholarship 
to a um, elite prep school in Connecticut. But she says that she doesn't want to go there unless Cash can go too. Um, Cash is also very creative, very smart in different ways, but he doesn't have a chance of, he just, he's not, he's not going to score. He's not going to get the scholarship. Somehow though, she gets it for both of them. They both get to go to this school together. And it's hard for Cash because he, he lost his mother to opioid addiction and he lives with his grandparents and he is very close to them. And he is extremely bonded to his grandfather who is dying of emphysema. And his grandfather is one of these people who just always has the right thing to say and the right way to say it and isn't shaken by much of anything. He's pretty unflappable. You, you know, he's just a, a, a great guy and, and he's very likable. So he's torn because he has to leave uh, them. And he knows that he may not see his grandfather alive again. Um, so they go. And then, of course, it's a totally different world. Um, Delaney can just like get right into it. She has no problem at all. But Cash is really like it's a little culture shock, you know, and, and he likes it, but he doesn't know if he can cope. He doesn't know if he should stay. And he also tries to still control Delaney. I mean, still protect her, still watch out for her. He tells her that at some point he tells her that he loves her. He does all these things and he has to go through the heartbreak of realizing that this thing that he thought all of his life that he thought he had and that would maybe be a reality is not going to be one. He can have her as his, you know, good friend and found family and whatever, but he, she's not in love with him. And coming through that is, is he realizes that doors open to him that wouldn't never have if he tried doggedly to pursue something that wasn't meant to pursue. So he, he grows up incredibly about love and about life. And he has to go back to Sawyer in the late fall because his grandfather does die. They've kept up on by FaceTime though, all through his, his school, they would talk every, every uh, once a week, they would have these chats on FaceTime. So he knew his grandfather was getting sicker. He went back to Sawyer and he, he fought a lot inside himself with where did he belong? There's this world that he's lived in, mowed lawns every summer, had, had his life. But then there's Connecticut where he's learning stuff and he's meeting people. He has this great cast of people in his life. And, and he, he it's, it, there's a lot of, a lot of struggle, but it's, it's good, healthy, evolving kind of struggle. So it's just a great read. Um, I, I like Jeff Sentner very much, like I said, and um, he can write another, he can write another book anytime soon that he wants, and I will be there <laughs> to read it. So this is In the Wild Light by Jeff Sentner. Robin recommended this to me uh, not too long after you did. Um, and so this one has been on my radar for quite a while because I really liked um, Goodbye Days. So we are ending um, with nine books this week instead of 12. We had a lot of great things to say about the books that we talked about. And so as um, sometimes happens when I am um, kind of you know weighing things out as I do, um, putting out this show each week, I had to make an executive decision. And that decision was that we would end today without the fourth round of three books, just for the sake of, um, of you know, not, not boring you and, and wearing out our welcome in your podcatcher of choice. I will put um, the bonus round, as I'll call it, in the show notes so that you can know the three books that we would have recommended to you if we'd had the time. So this concludes our episode on books set in schools. Thank you to Brooke and Christine for coming up with great books today and having such well thought out um, commentary on them. 
Christine, as is so often the case, gets double thanks for her editing as well as her participation. And we thank each and every one of you so much for joining us each week as we talk about great books, whether it's an even dozen or fewer. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody. Mm